place to subscribe is truthjihad.com. Hello and welcome. You're watching The Spotlight. Former U.S. President Donald Trump sponsored the so-called Abraham Accords between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, promising peace nearly two years ago. Sudan and Morocco followed their lead shortly afterwards. Since then, Saudi Arabia has been the silent party and the virtual signatory to the normalization process, waiting for the right moment to make its position public. But it seems like the two sides are showing their tendencies for normalization more overtly with the Israeli President Isaac Herzog openly stating in a recent interview that he wishes to visit the kingdom calling for normalization with Riyadh. The Israeli President, other than that, has also called for visiting the kingdom and now word is that the Israeli private plane, an Israeli private plane actually, has also landed in the Saudi capital. In this edition of the Spotlight, we discuss why both Tel Aviv and Riyadh are beating the drums of normalization at this point in time. And they will try, we will try to shed light actually on the different aspects of this. But before that, let's watch a report. Israel and Saudi Arabia have no diplomatic relations, officially. But for years, extensive behind-the-scenes diplomatic and intelligence cooperation between Tel Aviv and Riyadh has been open secret. Now, it seems that curtains are falling off of the covert relationship. Israeli media have revealed that an Israeli aircraft landed in an airport in Saudi Arabia's capital, Riyadh, late on Monday. The private plane reportedly took off from Tel Aviv. But this is not the first time that this has happened. Last October, another Israeli private jet landed in Riyadh, making it the first time a public flight from Israel has ever landed in a kingdom. This is the latest among improving regional ties for Israel after agreements to normalize ties with four nations, namely the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco and Sudan, were reached in the 2020 Abraham Accords. Tel Aviv and Riyadh opened their airspaces to each other in 2020. Apart from that, Israeli and Saudi officials have recently openly talked about normalizing ties. Last month, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said Riyadh does not look at Israel as an enemy. He went on to describe Israel as a potential ally with many common interests. Saudi Foreign Minister Faisal bin Farhan al-Assad has also recently told a Hebrew-language newspaper that the integration of Israel in the region will be a huge benefit not only for Israel, but for the entire region. Israeli President Isaac Herzog on Monday said in an interview that he likes to visit Saudi Arabia openly and called on Riyadh to join the Abraham Accords and normalize its ties with the regime. In November 2020, it was reported that the then-Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had secretly visited Saudi Arabia. The warming up of ties comes amid the escalation of tensions in the occupied territories. Israel has increased its raids on Al-Aqsa Mosque in recent weeks and attacks Palestinian towns and cities almost every day. Palestinians have increased their operations in response to the crackdown. They have conducted several stabbing and shooting operations, including one in Tel Aviv in the past two months, leaving over a dozen Israelis dead.
Palestinian response to the previous normalization deals has been clear, that it has not helped the resolution of the long-standing conflict in any meaningful way, and that Israeli brutalities, killings, house demolitions, land grabs and desecration of their sanctities have continued regardless. To them, resistance remains the only path leading to the liberation of the occupied territories. Now, in order to continue this discussion, we are joined by Kevin Barrett, author and Middle East expert, who's joining us live from Madison. And also Brian Terrell, political commentator and peace activist, who's joining us from Malloy. Thank you very much to both of you gentlemen for joining us. Let's begin with Mr. Barrett. Now, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has openly stated that Riyadh no longer views Tel Aviv as an enemy and has even come to regard the occupying regime as a potential ally. Also, Saudi Foreign Minister Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud recently welcomed the prospect of Israeli regime's integration into the region. Does the signal normalization ties anytime soon, or uh, are politicians just testing the waters to see if the time is right? Well, that's a, a good question, and I don't have any inside information allowing me to answer it. But what I can say is that when Saudi Arabia threatens to essentially embrace the genocidal Zionist entity and thereby endorse the destruction of Palestine the desecration of the world's oldest, most important Islamic architectural monument, the Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, which the Zionists are planning to demolish so they can build a blood sacrifice temple. Uh, this is complete treason to the Islamic world. It's one thing when countries like Sudan and uh, Morocco and so on uh, off at the peripheries um, commit this kind of treason. Um, it's unfortunate but it doesn't go to the heart of things in terms of the Muslim Ummah. But the Saudis are the usurpers who claim to be protecting the Haramain, the uh, crucial uh, center of uh, Islamic worship. And they're therefore obliged to defend Islam, which is under attack by the Zionists. The Zionists declared war on the religion of Islam and all Muslims in the world when they invaded and occupied and committed genocide in Palestine, which has been Muslim-administered holy land for all three Abrahamic religions essentially ever since Islam existed. So this is sheer treason, and it's going. If, if it happens, if this normalization goes through, every Muslim on earth is going to have to go to war with these usurping bandits in Riyadh. Exactly. And Mr. Terrell, one of the reasons Saudi Arabia has so far preferred to stay in the shadows is the fact that it was the only Arab country whose name is associated with the, the peace initiative that was adopted as a pan-Arab idea for permanent peace. What has changed now for the Saudis? Why don't they see any reason to hide their true intentions? Well, I think the... Um as a peace activist, of course, I would love to be able to, to celebrate people getting together and talking and, and uh, settling their differences, if that's what this is. But I think that this is more akin to um, uh, rival gangs sitting down and, and dividing the spoils and setting their, their uh, 
uh, the, you know, their turfs. The, the word normalization that's been said over and over again um, at present would be to normalize a intolerable criminal situation that should not be allowed to to continue. The, the normalization of relations between you know, these countries and uh, and Israel is not only normalizing the the uh, uh, continued occupation of Palestine, but it's uh, Normalizing the, the the you know the violence that's been seen, especially these last days, uh, is um, you know normalizing war and oppression, and it's normalizing uh, conditions in Saudi Arabia and in Bahrain that are that that uh, are um, making hell for the life of the people who live in those countries as well. Um, I think this is any any plea for peace, any agreements need to be made not by not by the princes and the oligarchs and the and the warlords. Uh, we just saw that in the, the Doha, Doha um, talks that, that happened about Afghanistan where the where the people most affected by these by the talks that the Taliban and the United States government had uh, were not represented, were not at the table. Uh, any kind of um, uh, any, any kind of peace talks, any kind of agreement, and I, uh, Prime Minister Herzog, the other day invited not just the Saudis to join the Accords, but the Abrahamic family to join the family. It's being placed as a family, but 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 the, the Palestinians don't have a voice. Uh, a voice there. The people of Yemen don't have a voice there. You know, the common people of Saudi Arabia and the common people of Bahrain and the UAE, who are very uh, uh, you know, politically uh, repressed, uh, who have suffer under tremendous human rights uh, abuses themselves, have no place at this table. So I think what we're seeing is a normalization of uh, a violent, very scary kind of situation, and it's going to be for the people who are running Saudi Arabia, for the people who are running Israel, for the arms dealers. Um, this will be, uh, you know, this this may be a very happy uh, event, and they. Uh, but for the people of the people living in these regions, for the common folk, they have nothing to celebrate from this. Exactly. They don't have anything to celebrate. And whenever we talk about Israel, it's just indispensable to talk about the U.S. So, uh, Mr. Barrett, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. has said, and I'm quoting him, it would be very important for our region if the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were to fix their relationship. Why is it so important? Well, it seems that the, the Saudis currently have managed to get some distance between themselves and Washington, D.C. in general, and the Biden regime in particular. Uh, the Saudis were in, in the pocket of Trump or vice versa, I guess, uh, during the Trump administration. And the Trump administration made all kinds of moves that are perhaps somewhat correctly or at least understandably viewed as totally insane by the majority of imperial strategists uh, here in the belly of the beast. And... So the Biden administration is not so enthusiastic about these Zionist extremist projects. Uh, it would not have put the U.S. embassy in occupied Jerusalem al-Quds. Uh, it wouldn't have totally 100 percent endorsed and normalized the occupation. 
and it certainly wouldn't have pushed these idiotic so-called Abraham Accords on the region. So there's a difference in thinking between the, uh, the lunatic neoconservatives around Trump, people like Pompeo and Bolton, and the really almost equally bad people, but slightly more sophisticated uh, and, and slightly more rational people around Biden. Uh, so there's, there's that issue. The Israelis, I think, are now signaling that they're all in on the war on Ukraine. We just had this brouhaha over the supposed uh, anti-Semitism of the totally reasonable thing said by Lavrov. And that's a signal that the Israelis are uh, jumping on board with the Ukraine bandwagon. And they would probably like to do that uh, as, as part of a, a imperial alliance. Zionists are actually the senior partners, not the junior partners, in the imperial alliance of the, uh, the Anglo-Zionist empire, the NATO states. Uh, and th that's because they have such important people, key finance people and people owning the journalism industry throughout the West. So the Zionists want to keep the empire together on the same page, and they want their absurd Trumpian extremism to be the order of the day and recognized even by the relatively uh, more reasonable, at least on that issue, people in D.C. So the Zionists, I guess, are trying to rally the so-called uh, fake West, uh, you know, this, this alleged collective uh, what do they call it, the collective international community or whatever, that's really just the Anglo-Zionist empire run by oligarchs who are predominantly or at least disproportionately ethnically Jewish, these billionaires who are primarily loyal to Israel and then are willing to be semi-loyal to those countries that slavishly serve Israel's interests, like the, the entire all of Western Europe, the United States, Canada, and Australia. And so they want to keep that, that empire together and on the same radical Zionist page. And unfortunately, they may succeed. So, in other words, you're saying that the Israelis are concerned that tensions between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia might push the Saudis towards Russia and China and even maybe better relations with Iran. But why do you think they would want to counter that? Well, that's a step towards the end of the empire's dreams of conquering the entire world. I and mean, what we're seeing right now in the war on Russia, which is what the, the supposed invasion of Ukraine really is, it's a NATO war of aggression against Russia, is an attempt to pick off one of the three key links in this new emerging multipolar world uh, of China, Russia, and Iran. China is the biggest. Iran is the most principled and the pioneer of pushing for a sovereign, uh, independent, multipolar world. And, uh, and now Russia is the one with all of the nuclear weapons and the military prowess. And so the, the Americans are trying to destroy uh, the, the Russian wing of this multipolar alliance. Uh, at one point, we thought they would go after Iran first. And then at another point, we thought they might be going after China. And, they, of course, they did when they attacked China with the COVID strike in Wuhan. That's another story. But, yeah, they're afraid that the Saudis might drift out of this empire, uh, make friends with uh, the Russians and the Chinese. And the Israelis don't want that because they know this Western empire is what keeps their Zionist project going. Okay, so, Mr. Terrell, how do you think Israelis are going to try and counter that? What are the strategies that they might have in mind? Um, well, I, I don't know that uh, the situation is as sophisticated as all of that. I, I think that, that uh, uh, yeah, uh, Israel is certainly wanting to maintain its, its hold on, 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 on Palestine and, and its uh, place of power in the, in the region. Uh, but I think, for as far as the United States is concerned, I think it's just uh, almost uh, almost pure business. Anything that can stock, that can stir the pot, anything that can can raise uh, 
uh, more money for the for the weapons manufacturers. Totally divorced from from ideology or any kind of big plan. It's 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 uh, make making a quick buck right now, uh, and anything that can make for more war and more disorder. Uh, is is what the United States is trying to do. I, I, the, the, the space, the distance between the Biden administration and the Saudis has been totally rhetorical. I mean, this was uh, President Biden uh, as a candidate mouthed what all the civilized world is saying about about uh, the Saudi war on Yemen and and used all the words that the rest of us use about a humanitarian disaster and and uh, and, and 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 a war crime and, and insisted it was all going to stop. His first uh, his first uh, address, public um, address on foreign relations, promised that the aid to um, uh, to Saudi uh, the military aid and arms sales to Saudi Arabia would stop. And immediately, you know, within months, there was billions of dollars worth of weapons from, from Raytheon that, that, that were sold to the Saudis. So I think that's a, you know, that's just a, um, just a cover. And I think all of this, too, if, if, if there were an accord, if there were a meeting of, of the leaders of these countries that actually were, was going to bring about permanent peace... Uh, I think the United States would 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 certainly be on the, the behest of the, of the arms manufacturers. They would they would sabotage that. They wouldn't let that would not let that happen for a minute. Uh, this is not a matter of permanent peace. You know, this this is our I'm afraid our country is bent on normalizing uh, permanent war wars that are not supposed to uh, you know clearly uh, not supposed to be. Um, Ever ended or settled or even won, but 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 to be continuous. And I think that the the, the Ukraine situation now is offering a, a a huge opportunity for the military industrial complex that the United States is not going to uh, not going to miss, not let it go by. Very interesting point you mentioned that because uh, the so-called Abraham, of course, claimed to be about peace. Uh, Mr. Barrett, how successful have they been? in bringing peace to the occupied territories in particular, especially keeping in mind the atrocities of Israelis against the Palestinian worshippers just a few weeks ago in Al-Aqsa Mosque. Well, these so-called Abraham Accords, which really have nothing to do with the Abrahamic religions, what they are is a, a, a dirty deal between Zionist gangsters and the gangsters running a handful of these other countries in the region, and they're not successful in, in they haven't been successful at all in bringing peace. On the contrary, it's been uh, bloody business as usual in occupied Palestine as the repression continues unabated. There's been no change whatsoever in the existential genocidal war on the Palestinian people uh, by the Zionists. And, and this is kind of surprising even to me. I mean, I, I'm cynical and I, I knew that the, uh, you know, the Saudis and their partners in crime were probably being mostly rhetorical when they said that as we're coming into these accords, you know, we're expecting that the, the Zionists will start making steps towards peace with the Palestinians, blah, blah, blah. But uh, nothing uh, in that direction has happened. Nothing whatsoever. There hasn't been the slightest move of one micrometer uh, towards peace uh, from the Zionist side in Palestine. If anything, they're accelerating their genocide uh, just throughout the entire holy month of Ramadan, which just ended, and, and Eid Mubarak to everyone. 
uh, the Zionists were brutally attacking worshipers in the Al-Aqsa Mosque on a regular basis. Um, they were you know, shooting people down and killing several Palestinians a day, as they always do. None of this has slowed, and there's been no move to come up with any even reasonable framework for actual peace in Palestine. So this, this whole idea that it's a peace agreement is a complete joke. And I, I, while I agree with, with the other guests that a lot of the impetus for this horrible situation is the military-industrial complex and the folks who are making money off it, I think we have to keep in mind that there is also a strategic dimension to that. That is the reason that the empire is constantly at war and willing to let the arms manufacturers uh, help push this policy of perpetual war and destruction is that it serves the strategic interests of the empire because right now the rest of the world is catching up with the West in terms of economic output and technology and productivity. And if, if everything continues in that vein, the Western empire will be eclipsed within a couple of decades at most. So they have to destroy. They have to kill. They have to stop the global economy from growing. They have to spread COVID and attack China and Wuhan with COVID. They have to start World War III in Ukraine. They need to blow up the planet and kill and kill and kill in order to prevent the eclipse of the unipolar empire and the rise of a multipolar empire. That's the strategic plan behind the apparent profiteering of the military-industrial complex, which just seems to be running everything so it can make money. No, there is a strategic plan behind it, and it's an evil one. So, Mr. Terra, I can see that you agree with uh, Mr. Barrett. Uh, if you could please elaborate what you think is the true nature of these uh, Abraham Accords. Is it more about building an anti-Iran coalition and sidelining the oppressed Palestinians, maybe? Yeah, it's, it is. It's about... Uh, sidelining the not only the people the, the the Palestinians but the the people of Bahrain and the people of Saudi Arabia uh the people of Yemen uh it's 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 uh it's it's to call this a peace accord is 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 really obscene uh it's it's a, it's a plan for again maintaining for normalizing normalizing what should never be normal what should never be 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 uh never be um tolerated at all i think that too this this uh we're, we're on the edge of um you know i, I think I, I agree with, with you know with some of what the other guests said and i uh not all but i think i think that we're at a very very scary time and and rather than lose this empire uh which is you know we're we're um willing to risk all life on earth we're we're on the we're closer to to a nuclear war according to the the bulletin of the atomic scientists now than we ever were during the during the cold war and in recent years we've had both the united states the joint chiefs of staff in a paper released in 2019 was to touting the new nuclear weapons that are being produced here uh as being more flexible more easily deployable and saying that with these new nuclear weapons the united states uh can be able to prevail on the battlefield. The whole notion of, of mutually assured destruction, the sort of Damocles, as President Kennedy called it, over all of our heads, threatening us every every day, whatever kind of protection that may have given us over the years. We have now, um, there isn't, you know, the mutually assured destruction is not mutually assured anymore. We have the United States, and then now uh, uh, Russia has, uh, just in recent months, uh, been talking about raising the idea that perhaps though they could win a nuclear war this absolutely insane idea that a nuclear war can be winnable uh which no one no 
no one suggested that for 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 many many years for decades has has reemerged and and i think this this uh may be a um uh you know the world headed toward toward destruction rather than 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 uh as the other guest said rather than than uh give up the unipolar <clears throat> unipolar um hegemony uh we'd rather be you know end the whole thing and it's a very very frightening time and we need real peace accords we need real people sitting down and and not sidelining the big issues but but uh yes if 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 only uh the you know the saudis and israel and uh uae and bahrain could could be sitting down with the united states and and with russia and with iran and be talking about what re, what's what would be a just solution that. but we're not doing that that's not what's happening Exactly, Mr. Tara. I'm sorry, we're running out of time. I had to cut you off. That was Mr. Brian Tara, political commentator and peace activist out of Malloy, and Kevin Barrett, author and a Middle East expert out of Madison. Thank you very much to both of you gentlemen for sharing your thoughts with us. And thanks to all of you viewers for watching this edition. That is Bob Seger and Hollywood Nights on the Richie Allen Show, 26 minutes past the hour from a sunny Salford, the Costa del Salford this afternoon. Kevin Barrett is standing by in Wisconsin, terrific writer, broadcaster and former academic, of course. Welcome back to the program, Kevin. How are you? I'm pretty well, Richie. Uh, Great to be back with you. Thanks. Love having you on. You know that's been uh, we've been doing this for years and years. Before I ask you for your thoughts on what's happening in Ukraine, it seems to me surprisingly that a lot of independent content creators are celebrating the imminent takeover of the Twitter platform by the billionaire Elon Musk, seeing it as some sort of I don't know victory for free speech. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a, a checkered victory. It's it's great that people will be getting their accounts restored on Twitter and so on. Elon Musk, though, is not entirely a good guy. There's a long list of issues around him. Uh, Helen of Destroy, uh, my uh, my good friend Helen Bynisky, who sometimes broadcasts with me at False Flag Weekly News, she just came back after a long absence, uh, wrote a great piece on this. So if people go to the Helen of Destroy blog, they can see her uh, kind of downside take of uh, Elon uh, Musk and, and Twitter. But I do think that, you know, she says that when Elon says he's going to, you know, obey the law, he doesn't want to censor any more than the law allows. Helen says, well, that's no good because look look what the law allows in Europe. They don't allow anything. But here in the United yeah. States, we do still have a little bit of residual respect for the First Amendment. And so I assume that American political speech may be uh, loosened up at least a little bit, and some of these people who've been deplatformed will come back to Twitter. So, I mean, there's, the glass is half full as well as half empty. Yeah, I won't be holding my breath that my account will be restored anytime soon. The problem with Twitter is it's a leveraged buyout, of course, and Musk is in the business of making money, Kevin. And once advertisers start saying to Elon Musk, sorry, pal, we're pulling away from you because we don't like the fact that you allow hate speech on your platform, that's when it goes back to being business as usual. The algorithms kick back in and it just, um, you know, it it becomes the Twitter of 
What was the guy's name? Jack Dorsey. That's my guess. What do you think? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it plays out that way. I, I don't think Elon Musk is any saint, and I suspect his commitment to free speech may uh, get trumped by his profit uh, bottom line, like you said. So, yeah, you're, you're probably right. I kind of hope not, but on the other hand, uh, you know, putting our, our hopes in these billionaire celebrities is pretty ridiculous. The whole cult of Elon Musk is ridiculous, too. If we're going to change things, we really need to do it ourselves and, and not plan on uh, nice billionaires doing it for us. Well said. Truthjihad.com. Go there to find uh, more about Kevin Barrett. False Flag Weekly News, as he mentioned, terrific broadcasting. A tremendous range of guests, experts on so many different things. And you're hearing things, of course, you're not ever going to hear on the legacy, legacy media. Kevin Barrett is our guest. When you send tanks and rockets and guns to a country uh, to be used against another country, you're effectively waging war on the third party, aren't you? The US, the UK and others are basically now in a proxy war with Russia. It looks that way. And it's only a question of how far they go, supplying the weapons and the advisors and the targeting and so on, before uh, Russia goes ahead and hits a NATO country. And, you know, they're warning us. And we didn't listen to Putin before. You know, Putin did give us an ultimatum back at the beginning of the year, uh, saying we need to talk now about neutrality for Ukraine. And NATO just blew him off, and look what happened. And now uh, Putin and Lavrov uh, and, and other Russians are warning us in no uncertain terms that we're flirting with nuclear war, that the extreme measures are going to be used with lightning speed, um, things that we've never seen before in our history. And last time we ignored them, Look what happened. So uh, I really think that NATO and especially the Europeans, you know, what, what's wrong with you Europeans, Richie? I mean, you guys must be completely insane because, you know, if this war does accelerate and, and escalate and become a, a wider war, you're on the front lines and you're all going to get destroyed. And even if the war doesn't reach that point, you're going to get destroyed economically anyway by cutting off the Russian gas and freezing, shivering and having your economy implode. Uh, and so you guys have sacrificed everything just to remain a colony of the U.S. occupation that's euphemistically disguised as the word NATO. Uh, are you guys insane or what? Kevin, I'm, I'm not too concerned about nuclear missiles flying over the U.K. because I've got iodine tablets, Kevin. Uh, I've got several boxes of, of iodine tablets. <laughs> well, that, that, that'll save you. <laughs> that'll save me. Yeah. I remember when we were children going to school. I went to St. Saviour's Primary School in 1979, and there was some, there must have been some incident in 1980 or 1981. There must have been some tension, but we, we were, we were told about getting, getting under the desks and all of that jazz. Yeah, like that's going to do you any good. Here's the thing. When I talk about Ukraine, um, I do hear from some Ukrainian people, genuine Ukrainians, and they say, Richie, while the recent history of Ukraine is, um, you know, certainly favours Russia. We know the 2014 coup. We don't have to talk about that because we know what happened there. We know that the, the Maidan or Maidan revolution was a false flag. We know that. We know that John Kerry and Victoria Newland um, replaced Viktor Yanukovych um, with their own puppet. We know all of that. But, but listeners to this show, they say, Richie, Ukraine has a long and very checkered history. And it had its own constitution 200 years ago. It's changed hands a lot, Ukraine. 
And they tell me, these people, that while there are some ultra-nationalists in the country, and they might be lunatics, or as we say, head of balls, heads of balls, we say here in the UK, the fact is there are a lot of people in that country who don't want to have anything to do with Russia. Nothing. They remember communism. They have no time for it. They don't like Russia. And they say, Ukraine is our country. And if we want to join NATO, well, that's up to us. We have the right to do that as a sovereign, independent nation. Now, there's a flip side to that, and that is, why should Russia put up with that? Why should Russia put up with NATO surrounding its own country um, by placing missile bases and everything else in other countries? I get that. So what I don't understand is why Putin didn't say, listen, you know, we'll, we'll look after the Donbass, we'll look after South East Ukraine and the Russian separatists there, you be your own independent Ukraine if you want, but if we get a whiff of NATO rolling into town with bases and tanks, well, then we'll bomb you back to the Stone Age. I don't understand why that wasn't on the table from day one. Well, part of the problem, Richie, is that if the Russians waited until Ukraine officially joins NATO, then when Russia bombs Ukraine back to the Stone Age, it's World War Three. So... This was preemptive, and it had to be done before Ukraine was officially part of NATO, although it was already pretty much unofficially part of NATO. But it didn't automatically trigger that uh, mechanism in NATO that says that every country that uh, is a member of NATO is automatically at war when any one country is attacked. Now, that would have been triggered if Russia had waited until Ukraine was, was in NATO. So that's part of the answer to your question. And then as to the larger question of why should Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO and say they hate the Russians and so on and so forth, well, you know, in a perfect ideal world, uh, maybe that would be true. But in the real world, as John Mersheimer points out in his great uh, video on uh, NATO is at fault in Ukraine, smaller countries on the border of larger countries need to be quite reasonable and to extend themselves to be reasonable with regard to their relations with the larger countries, especially if they want to remain independent. And so Ukraine just made a, a terrible mistake. Uh, and the ordinary Ukrainians who don't like Russia, and I don't blame them, they have a historical reason for that, uh, but they got suckered by the lunatics, the neocons and the, and the Nazis, and now they're not going to have Ukraine. Ukraine is gone. It's There will be a rump Ukraine, but Russia is going to end up with everything uh, to the east of the Dnieper River and everything along the Black Sea coast. Ukraine just lost its entire sea coast. Uh, smart move there. I mean, if, if Ukraine had just decided to remain neutral and not become a puppet and colony of the NATO war machine, and NATO is the most evil empire in the history of the world by orders of magnitude, so saying that they have the right to join NATO, that's like saying you have the right to join Satan. It's nonsense. Uh, but it, it, they could have remained perfectly independent. Uh, Russia was happy with their neutrality uh, under Yanukovych and others, and instead they just threw away their future and essentially destroyed their country by making an incredibly stupid decision. They wanted to sell Ukraine out to the highest bidder, didn't they? The European Union was was one of the bidders, wanted to loan billions of euro to Ukraine, and this is ultimately what it's about, and, and it, it pains me to this day that people can't see this. I don't have a modest bone in my body, Kevin, but I am not an especially intelligent man. So if I can see this stuff, it pains me that others can't because it's so obvious. It's blindingly obvious that countries are raped, pillaged, robbed, stolen by oligarchs using things like the European Union, using things like NATO. I don't understand why people can't see through that. 
Why can't they see it, Kevin? Why can't people see the European Union wanted to get Ukraine into the fold so that it could loan Ukraine money it could never pay back so that it could rob it? Why couldn't they see that NATO countries wanted them to join so that they could, um, you know, further escalate uh, tensions and aggression with Russia? It's so obvious. What's wrong with people? If I can see it, why can't everybody? Well, you are paying more attention than most people, and and uh, and you you know you're not slow witted by any means, Richie. But seriously, I think the propaganda machine is quite powerful. And you know, ever since the days when Sigmund Freud's nephew Bernays figured out that he could apply Freud's discovery of the unconscious to so-called public relations, which is actually mass mind control propaganda. Uh, by manipulating people's emotions beneath the surface of consciousness and preventing their critical reasoning from ever even getting engaged. You know, since then, the uh, experts have been manipulating mass consciousness with uh, propaganda that's aiming at the emotions. We can see that with Ukraine, with all of this nonsense about these uh, supposed Russian massacres that never happened and how Russia is deliberately targeting civilians, when the truth is that Russia is working overtime to avoid targeting civilians and harming its own military objectives to do so, as opposed to the U.S. way of war, which is to immediately bomb civilian infrastructure and starve everybody and murder half a million Iraqi children. You like don't know, Hang on. You don't know that those Russian massacres didn't happen. You have a predetermined, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but but you have a predetermined position. You have a long-established position where you've been writing about, quite rightly, by the way, um, the, the, the foreign policy of your own government, of Britain, of Israel. That's where you come from. And you might be, I'm not accusing you, but your critics will accuse you of th- that colours your opinion of what's going on in Ukraine. I say that because in war, people do terrible things. It doesn't matter if they're on the right side of history or not. It doesn't matter. Like, like I know that Bashar al-Assad is on the right side of history, but I know that his armies did terrible things in Syria. I believe the Russians have done some terrible things. I'm not saying I don't believe, I'm not saying I believe everything the BBC tells me about Russia, about bombing theaters and hospitals. Look, it's bollocks, Kevin. We know that. We saw this in Kuwait, but I believe some terrible things have gone on there. When you fire into cities, into populated cities with um, apartment blocks and buildings and houses, you're going to kill people. And the minute you do that, you lose the moral argument. Go ahead. Well, I agree that uh, undoubtedly a lot of innocent civilians have been killed uh, by Russian uh, bombs and artillery. That's true. But all of the most celebrated incidents that have been used by the Western propaganda machine to brainwash the Western audience into hating Russia appear to have all been manipulated, staged, or lied about. I mean, all of these uh, famous uh, incidents. And so, yeah, while there undoubtedly are all kinds of uh, civilian casualties, these, you know, cases of mass Russian rape here and, uh, you know, deliberately bombing a maternity hospital there uh, and the, the so-called Bucha massacre, which was actually carried out by Ukrainians, uh, all of these things uh, have been thoroughly debunked. And indeed, they didn't, it, anybody with uh, basic reason who can sort through the information can figure out why all of these things would have been extremely unlikely, given the way the war is being waged and, and given the, the, the facts. And so, uh, yeah, while I agree that... When you're fighting uh, an enemy that's using civilians as human shields, uh, obviously you're probably going to kill some civilians. But the truth is that, yes, the Russians have killed a lot of civilians. However, 
Had they wanted to win the war faster, they would have killed uh, many, many orders of magnitude more civilians than they have because they're waging an extremely restrained war based on an uh, imperative to try to minimize civilian casualties because they know they're going to have to run the Ukraine after they end up with it or part of it. Uh, so yeah, they're, I, can't, um, I can't dispute that. The, 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 your point there about them not going in there and flattening the country. You're absolutely right. It could have been done. It wasn't done. I'll, I'll certainly concede that point. Kevin, I have this feeling, you know, we've had these conversations, you and I, for a long time, and I know you don't see it this way, which is good because my audience needs a different perspective. They get too much of me. But I look at what's going to happen if this becomes protracted. And what's going to happen if, thing, if this becomes protracted, you hinted at this yourself earlier on, economic collapse in Europe. And I believe there are those who want that to happen, Kevin. So when I look at, it, at that, I have to consider the possibility that this long drawn out protracted nightmare in Ukraine, which could, I'm not saying it's going to become like the Russian Afghanistan conflict, but it could go on if it does the interruption of the food chain, all, all of those issues is going to be catastrophic in Europe and elsewhere. And I know there are those who want that to happen, including those behind the Great Reset Agenda. What am I supposed to think? Well, I can't really argue with that, Richie. Uh, I don't really disagree with that. Uh, I recently interviewed Peter Koenig, who used to work for the World Bank and is now a, a pretty serious world-class dissident about this. And he argues that this war is part of the Great Reset Agenda and that, indeed, it's been deliberately designed to uh, trash the global economy and that these Malthusians are behind it. And folks who, who think that the population is, is too high and uh, we might as well start <laughs> reducing it by whatever means necessary. And so Peter and others of, of that uh, line of thought, who I think very well may be at least partly right, if not completely right, you know, think that the not only COVID, but also the, the vaccines are all designed to damage us uh, in service to depopulation. And Kevin Galilee also has, has written a whole book about this. Uh, and this Ukraine war is certainly going to help depopulate the world to one extent or another. So, and, and, and of course, it's designed also to try to bleed uh, Russia. And they, they're trying to draw Russia into another Afghan bear trap. And this is all in service to establishing a one-world government presided over by the so-called uh, neoliberal uh, capitalist Western oligarchs. And then they'll implement these uh, kind of mass control measures and get total control of, of everybody. And so, yeah, I, I think that's probably, in, in broad strokes, uh, what you said is true. I know you definitely don't agree with this, but I believe that every world leader is either consciously or unconsciously in lockstep with it. And I know you don't agree with that. And you'll make a great argument as to why you don't agree with it, I have no doubt. But I believe that they have the technology, they have the sophisticated weaponry, they have the means to impress upon people, even through their subconscious, to make decisions that maybe they don't even realize they're making. Why am I saying that? Because I look at China, I look at Shanghai and Beijing, and I look at the fact that they haven't had a single COVID death in over a year. And yet the premier of that country, Xi Jinping, is locking tens of millions of people down into their houses, making their lives a misery, starving them. Now, there will be people listening to this. They'll say that I've drunk the Kool-Aid now and I'm parroting mainstream media. I'm not. This is going on in China. I know it to be. And it makes no sense. There's no earthly reason why Xi Jinping would do that. None. Not even to control his own people. 
There is no reason. There's no danger from COVID. People are not dying. They've only got a handful of cases. Yet he's wrecking his own economy. But it's also, again, going to cause a massive shock to Western economies when goods from China start drying up. That's why I start to, to wonder, Kevin, if one way or another, every one of these bastards is in on it one way or another. What do you think? Well, that's always possible. I think it's probably not the case, though. I think that the folks have, they, they, the leaders have constrained uh, sets of possibilities of how they can behave and the decisions they can make. And so I think you can imagine that the leadership in Russia, China, and Iran, uh, and Venezuela, uh, Cuba, that in all of these places that are essentially independent from the Western oligarchy, the leadership is sincerely trying to do what they think is best for their own nation and their own people. Clearly, Putin seems to be doing that. And as for what's going on in China, Matt Eret, uh, E-H-R-E-T, has done some interesting uh, broadcasts and writing about the fact that the Chinese leadership knows that COVID is a Western bioweapon, that the people who attacked uh, Wuhan and Qom with COVID in order to target the Chinese and Iranian economies are undoubtedly going to follow up with ethnic-specific bioweapons at some point. And so the zero COVID policy, it could be because COVID is actually worse than we think. Yeah, the vaccines are terrible too. Lockdowns are terrible. But maybe uh, COVID is going to be showing up as uh, something that's going to hinder fertility or who knows what in in the long run. But more likely, uh, China is seeing this as a kind of a dress rehearsal for the big one when the bio-warriors who planted COVID in in, uh, China and Iran do it with something even nastier. And, you know, they've been drilling for this for a long time. They've been under biological attack for a long time. And in, in 2017 and 2018, they were hit with uh, pig flu and bird flu that took out most of their meat supply. And then they were hit with COVID in 2019. And so they're totally paranoid about uh, being attacked by bioweapons. And they have every reason to be. On the food, that's an interesting answer. You might be right, by the way. I'm not going to... I'm not going to waste time arguing with you because it's a, it's, um, it's definitely food for thought and there will be a lot of listeners who agree with that. You know, who will say, look, no, these guys are not in on it. They're definitely opposed to what's happening in the West. And, and look, I, I respect that. I'm, I'm not entirely in agreement with it, but it doesn't matter. On, um, the food supply. Very interesting conversation with John Waters, terrific Irish journalist last night on the program. And he tells me that some, some American, or, or Australian content creators are doing some terrific work about how false flag attacks are happening against food depots or food stores or food production facilities in parts of your country, Kevin. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but have you come across any of that or heard anything about that as, as you know, food becomes a little bit more expensive and there are fears that there will be shortages? Um, it wouldn't surprise me, but I would, I would still be like aghast at the idea that people would start, you know, to, to tamper with the existing food supply that might be stored in certain parts of uh, the, the U.S. or anywhere else. Have you come across any of that? No, I haven't. Uh, I, so these are false flag attacks. So who who's the patsy who's being blamed and for what purpose? Well, 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 nobody specifically, but apparently there's been a series of um, explosions or contaminations at food storage facilities in certain parts of the United States. In one place, a light aircraft apparently crashed 
into a food storage facility. And I, I, I'm, I'm on the fly here now. We are live. But John Waters brought this to my attention last night and said a credible content creator has been following this story. What I'll do afterwards, Kevin, is I'll get a link for you and I'll send it to you over the Skype. It was news to me last night, but um, it's a dastardly thing, you know, if it is going on, if people are trying to exacerbate the problems with food and drive prices up even further by diminishing the supply, by tampering with it. But, you know, I suppose worse things have happened, haven't they, over the years? Yeah, although deliberately starving people does qualify as <laughs> as worse than most things that happen. Uh, but yeah, I'd be interested in hearing more about that. Uh, obviously, food prices are going up all over the world thanks to this idiotic war in Ukraine, which has taken out the Ukrainian food supply, a lot of the Russian wheat supply, uh, and of course the energy prices have gone through the roof and energy is used to produce food. So all of this does mean it's a perfect storm for food supply and the people who suffer will be the world's poorest people, uh, probably not ordinary Americans so much, but uh, who knows, at some point uh, maybe the chickens will come home to roost. Yeah, and it, one of the things we're obviously forecasting here is massive migration unlike anything ever seen in my lifetime, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa and, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, Africa in, in general. I wanted to ask you this, Kevin. Kevin Barrett is our guest, folks. Go to truthjihad.com. Check out False Flag Weekly News. Mentioned earlier on, terrific guest, great analysis, always interesting, never dull, Kevin Barrett. Listen, you came to my attention a long time ago when as a, um, uh, a lecturer, you were brought on to Fox News and you did a fantastic job of getting some points to a massive audience at the time about the September the 11th attacks and that all wasn't as it appeared. And that's how you came to world attention. There's no doubt about that. You woke people like me up to it and got us looking again at it, you and, and, and Jim Fetzer and one or two others. It was amazing stuff at the time. I still occasionally look at some of those interviews on, on YouTube. It's a, actually, I would, for anybody who ever thinks they're going to be in a hostile interview situation on television, check out Kevin on Fox News. That's how you deal with these idiots. But um, you just mentioned about these world, world leaders, and you mentioned Iran. So, so I've got to ask you this. I know in my bones that the Iranian leadership of the last 20 years or 25 years, the leadership of other countries, the leadership of Syria, um, China, definitely Russia, they would know that September the 11th was, was a massive false flag attack. And yet, with multiple opportunities, either speaking at the United Nations General Assembly or elsewhere, none of them have ever said this. And I can't think of a good reason why they wouldn't have done. And, and I really can't. And I'm a journalist and I've worked in the legacy media. I've looked at it and I, I've, I've seen no downside, only upsides to Iran and others putting it out there. Look, here's the evidence. These bastards, you know, killed thousands of their own people and they want to call us terrorists. It never happened. And you must have pondered this yourself over the years, Kevin. Why do you think that is? Well, actually, it did happen, Richie. Uh, on multiple occasions, uh, Ahmadinejad went before the United Nations. This is when he was president of Iran and said 9-11 was an inside job and a false flag. And did he really? Yeah. Yeah. Just Google it. It's, you can't miss it. And of course, he took all kinds of flack for that among, and for other things. 
but he he survived and and in iran there is uh the group well his supporters and various others uh in the camp of the supreme leader and the so-called principles the people who care more about principle than pragmatism have been pushing 9-11 truth since way back which is how i got invited to iran i traveled there uh, every year at least once a year from 2013 on until i think the last one was like 2019 or something after which we were told we would be arrested on the plane uh, getting off the plane back in the us if we went to the next uh, conference sponsored by the new horizon group so the those people and, and interestingly we got banned uh immediately after i had finally convinced uh, the iranians to invite ex us military and cia people uh, there was uh, phil giraldi and Michael Springman and various others who were at that conference in Iran and who urged the Iranians to defend themselves in the 9-11 lawsuit here in the United States by with a 9-11 truth defense, bringing in the architects and engineers and so on. And that almost uh, worked. The Unfortunately, they had a short window of time to appeal and they weren't able to do it. Uh, there, there are different factions in Iran like everywhere else. And the faction that I like is totally pro-9-11 truth. Uh, others in Iran, the more pragmatic people, say, look, we're, we're just going to cause trouble for ourselves if we push this. And actually, it's okay for us to blame our enemies, the Wahhabis and the Saudis and, and that those type of Muslims for 9-11. So we're not really gaining anything by exposing this truth anyway. Uh, so there's a debate there. But yeah, Iran has been pushing 9-11 truth. Uh, and other heads of state have as well. Uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamed, uh, had a whole conference that it basically convicted, a war crime tribunal that convicted uh, the U.S. leadership for uh, for 9-11. And you just haven't heard this because the media hasn't covered it. Yeah, it's um, it's, 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 um, it's poor form for me not to know um, Ahmadinejad mentioned it at the United Nations. I'll give myself a slap later on. I do remember him receiving a lot of flack for allegedly saying that Israel shouldn't exist. They tried to imply he was threatening Israel when he wasn't. He was just saying that historically it doesn't have any legality. It shouldn't exist. I do remember that. But the likes of Putin and the Chinese leadership, I mean, these are big players. They, they never thought that, you know, we could expose this and we could we could humiliate these people. And, and I, I have to wonder about that. You know, that's a missed opportunity in the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, well, one reason that Russia may be pussyfooting with it to a certain extent, although they, they did have uh, generals who were uh, speaking out about 9-11 truth early on, uh, and uh, China hasn't done much. And as for Russia, though, you know, they're vulnerable because uh, the, the Putin regime actually consolidated power thanks to the, a huge false flag, uh, those apartment bombings in the 90s. And... That, that happened just a few years before 9-11 and may have even to some extent been a model for 9-11. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so there is that aspect. And uh, Russia today actually used to push 9-11 truth, and they used to invite me on all the time to talk about 9-11. And then uh, the founder of RT, Mikhail Lesson, was murdered in a Washington, D.C. hotel room maybe six, seven years ago. Uh, mysterious murder. Um, they wrote it off as natural causes, of course. And ever since that coup d'etat at RT, RT has totally blacked out 9-11 truth. So there are factional fights within these countries, Iran, Russia, and elsewhere. Uh, and, of course, Iowa's side with the truth-telling faction. Kevin, there's a question coming in. Um, this is not a gotcha moment. Um, it's from Hoffman, who says, Richie, can you ask Kevin if he knows anything about the Spanish intelligence services staging Islamic terror attacks to disrupt the Catalan independence movement. There we are. Putting you on the spot there now, Mr. Barrett. 
You know, I, I just don't know too much about that. I did uh, travel to uh, to Tarragona and, and Barcelona uh, back several years ago and hung around with my good friend John Ravuski, who's the he's the webmaster at HeresyCentral.is, a really good site, and and he totally hates the separatists, uh, and he thinks that they're the ones that are doing the deception of the false flags. And I tried to investigate, I tried to argue with him, and I just didn't have time to learn enough to figure out who's right about that. Brilliant. Hey, listen, on the, just before we say goodbye today and give Rabia my uh, regards, by the way, Rabia's got a book out, Kevin. I was supposed to put something on my website about this and uh, I work alone and it never happened. Let's give a plug to Rabia's book. She's got a book for vegans, doesn't she? That's right. It's Well, it's actually called Moroccan Cooking for Diabetics, but ah. it, it's actually designed, it's, it's Moroccan cooking designed to make everybody healthier because the mechanism that causes diabetes is the same mechanism that causes aging and all kinds of other problems. So uh, if you eat right, uh, you can avoid that those problems. And traditional Moroccan cuisine can be modified a little bit to make it perfect for this. So that's what she did. And she wrote it actually un- under her uh, her other name, uh, Fatna Belushi. So people can search for Moroccan cooking for diabetics at Amazon uh, and find that. Moroccan cooking for diabetics. Check it out at Amazon. She's a real clever lady. Um, is Rabia really smart? Uh, do check that out and and uh, and pick up pick up a copy of it. But particularly, obviously, if you know somebody who is diabetic. Um, Kevin, just uh, very very briefly, finally, uh, David has been on our website to say this is um, David who goes by La Antenna. He says it's the Ice Age farmer who's been looking into attacks on food production infrastructure. Um, apparently there's been two plane crashes recently into food facilities. So that's what John Waters mentioned to me last night. Um, if you get a chance to check it out later on, the Ice Age farmer um, is looking into it. And, you know, I've had him on before in the past. I think he's a fairly level-headed guy. He's pretty shrewd, I think. So that might be worth something looking into. Folks, Kevin Barrett can be found at truthjihad.com. And uh, you've got to check out False Flag weekly news until next month my friend thanks as always for your company okay thanks richie love talking to you me too buddy thank you uh check out rabia's book it's written under her other name moroccan cooking for diabetics you'll find it at amazon.com or .co.uk cheers